Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good afternoon, good evening, good day. Whenever you happen to be listening to our podcast, we welcome you and we thank you for listening. Um, I am Rob Watson, and you are listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Um, The world has gone mad. It is a crazy time with a pandemic and riots and um, an incredibly inept leader at the top of the heap. Um, So we've, we've got a lot to cover Today, we are going to focus in on black youth in particular in the age of riots, pandemic, and the search for justice, of which um, we've seen many injustices in the past month, and um, during the riots, we've seen even more. Um, We are going to talk about the experience of not just black youth, but black LGBT youth in particular. Um, Today's guest has particular insights. She is phenomenal. Um, We're going to be talking to Kristen Cece Battle, and she is the director of the People for the American Ways Foundation, or American Way Foundation, um, Young People Four. Uh, She heads that organization, and uh, she was, and that the organization is developed and focused on college-aged youth, she has the distinction of having actually moved up as part of the organization as one of those youth to um, eventually become its leader. Um, So we're going to talk um, in depth to her about all those issues I described. First, I'm going to bring on my um, beloved co-host, journalist Brody Levesque, um, who has had his finger on the pulse on all this and much, much more. Brody, welcome to the show today. Good afternoon, and these days it feels more like a tourniquet as opposed to a finger on the pulse. It's kind of like a little Dutch boy thing where you start sticking your fingers in the dike and you just, you're being overwhelmed. Um, the last uh, couple of weeks have been extremely sad uh, for the American nation. The outrageous murder of a black man uh, at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department set off protests, which in turn, uh, as former Vice President uh, Joe Biden indicated earlier in the week, it pulled the scab off of an issue that the American nation as a whole uh, has never addressed. Uh, It goes all the way back to when the ink on the founding documents hadn't even dried yet, and that's racism. In particular, though, it's focusing more on something that has been extremely a contemporary problem it has never been resolved it just simply has not been addressed and that is police brutality for the african-american community in particular uh it is absolutely the number one cause uh for alarm for consternation for fear uh there's just no way that any black person in this country can feel comfortable around anyone wearing a uniform and a badge. It's just, it's not a possibility. And, you know, it's not a situation of just a few bad apples. And the reason I say that 
is because in Buffalo, New York, about two hours ago, all 57 members of the rapid emergency response team resigned after two or three of their officers had been suspended for shoving an elderly protester and beating another one. And so they resigned in solidarity. In Minneapolis, the head of the police union there is absolutely uh, causing rancor with his support of the four officers involved in the murder of George Floyd. And this is just all over the United States. And so for people to sit there and say, what's this and that is a lie. In Los Angeles, we saw three incidences as recently as Monday. An elderly gentleman in a wheelchair was literally shot point blank range with a rubber bullet by LAPD officers. Mind you, this is a homeless man in a chair. We saw LAPD officers brutalizing okay, protesters. We saw Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department personnel brutalizing a black protester, chasing him down, dragging him behind a structure, and then beating him. And yet, the sheriff, Alex Villanueva, still hasn't addressed that issue. This is a problem, but it's a much larger specific problem to anyone who is black in the United States. This is in terms of a fear factor. This is in terms of survivability. President Obama spoke a couple of days ago on a Zoom conference call uh, from the Obama Foundation. And one of the things that the president said that I picked up on was that we have to make it so the opportunities are there. We have to address this. We have to have these protests. I, I have to applaud this morning's actions uh, by D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who I know. I have a lot of respect for the mayor. Uh, she painted Black Lives Matters in bright yellow paint up 16th Street, three blocks from the White House. You can't miss it. And then she made sure to change the street signs, renaming that short section of 16th Street between Lafayette Park in front of the St. John's Church where Trump did his photo op and the AFL-CIO building as Black Lives Matter Square. But we need more. We need to have specific engagement in this space. We need to be able to talk to people about these things. And we need to, you know, really wrap our heads, our arms, and our hearts around the fact that American law enforcement has gone too far, way too far. This isn't a case where we need to have a restructuring and a gentle, you know, well, we need to overhaul this, we need to do that, and we need to do this. Governor Gavin Newsom about 30 minutes ago announced that he has directed the state of California's police training uh, board to absolutely do away with what they call carteret ordery or, or holds, not unlike what we were seeing, um, any kind of chokehold for police. Well, that's a good step in the right direction. But there are some of us that have watched these riots, covered these riots, there are those of us that have watched what's been going on in, the, in, in what's, quite frankly, incidences of terrorism against the black community by people wearing uniforms and badges. It's got to stop. It just has to stop. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> okay there. Thanks, Brody. Um, I'm going to turn that, this over to our guest, um, and we will we'll absolutely get into more detail on all of this. 
Uh, I want to welcome uh, Cece to the program. Welcome, Cece. Um, can you tell us about the uh, the Young People for organization and and what it stands for? Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate you all having me on the show today. Um, so Young People for we are a national social justice incubator because we believe that everyone, regardless of their socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexuality, deserves to live a life of dignity. And we understand that in the world and the society that we live in, in order for folks to live this life, they need access to resources, whether it be education, housing, food, and all of those resources are controlled by industries. So our, our thing is, well, if we can change the leaders that are leading all of these industries, whether it be government, whether it be corporate, whether it be nonprofit, whether it be, you know, artists and activists, to people who are rooted in social justice values and solutions, we can get to the world of our dreams. So that's what we aim to do with our incubator. We've been doing this work for 16 years, and we currently serve 2,100 young and young-ish people, I have to say that, um, in all 50 states and territories in the District of Columbia. And right now, you know, our folks thankfully are in those industries, but they're young, they're making their way into different leadership positions. But what's really important to understand about the type of leaders that we support and engage in and uplift are Black and Brown and Indigenous and LGBTQIA+. And differently able folks, because we know that those are the folks who have the ideas and the life experiences to not only incrementally change these industries and systems, but to transform them in a way that's equitable for all. So that's the, the quick and dirty. There's a lot of work that we do um, in, in terms of programmatically to, to, to showcase this work, but that's our North Star, you know, and I think what's really important to underscore, especially in this time, is, you know, we're at a place where representation of, of having different folks in industries that maybe look like us is great. But what we need right now are people who are rooted in social justice values and solutions, who are not just looking to move the needle a little bit. They're willing to flip mm -hmm. the, change it, the, the table and rearrange it. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. Um, now, this has got to be somewhat personal for you, having you grown up through the program as, as somebody the program was doing outreach towards and then grew up to lead it. What, what inspired you Absolutely. to get involved on in this? Similar to the young folks that are, you know, organizing and act and, and, and becoming activists in this time, you know, I, when I was in college, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I went to college in Miami, Florida. And, Miami is a very interesting place. There's a, not only are there a lot of cultures, but there's a lot of oppression, and particularly anti-blackness. Um, at the time, the legislation that was really big that we were organizing around was the DREAM Act. And a lot of folks, when they think of, of folks who are undocumented, think of folks who are not black. And in South Florida in particular, there are a lot of amazing black immigrants who have contributed to the ethos and the fabric of the culture that I love, that I grew up in. And we started organizing because we as students at the time, we as black students at the time, of course wanted, you know, a pathway to citizenship for everybody, but the voices that were missing were black voices. 
And my first start was, was with the United States Students Association, and then shortly thereafter, I was introduced to the work of Young People For. And what really changed the game for me in my own, you know, activism was there were people who saw, who understood that my rage was justified, people who understood mm-hmm. that, that my rage was actually passion. And all I needed, I was brilliant, right? All I needed was access to resources and opportunity to allow my brilliance to grow. And that's what Young People For did for me, and that's what we continue to do. As we look, you know, at these young folks that are out and about, we have to also remember that these are the young folks that a lot of folks have, you know, counted out, you know, and said, oh, they're just, they're just radical. Oh, they're just rebel rousers. Oh, they're always complaining about something, not realizing that those are the young people that have the solutions. Those are the young people that have the, the guts. To, to say and stand up and say that this isn't right. So that was my story, and I'm really excited to see so many other young folks, you know, wake up and, and activate during this time and really excited that Young People For is here, was here, to continue to, to help them do that. No, that's, that's, that's um, I mean, that's incredible that the, the organization is picking that up. But um, Brody talked about um, what was going on right now with, episodes of police brutality that we're seeing um, across the country as, as a lot of these riots are breaking out and reactions, um, which are, are way, way overdue. Um, I mean, this is, this last incident was not the first. It was essentially the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. But um, to me, there is something that we don't, maybe get outraged enough about because it is more subtle and it is, but it is characteristic of the uh, systematic racism that is the core of why a lot of these incidents happen. And I'm talking about the, the incidents where innocent people are called out, questioned like the um, incident in Central Park where the woman um, manufactured a threat because uh, a black man was asking her to put her dog on a leash. A, a gay black man, I might add, uh, was asking her to put her dog on a leash. And um, a woman in, in uh, one of the college dorms was taking a nap in um, a student lounge, and the campus police were called to find out what she was doing there. I mean, it's that that systematic bias that and I think this is to your point of of the the right people not being in the positions um you know why are you here did you experience that mm-hmm. uh, did, did I experience that in, in my own personal life absolutely I mean yeah. Yeah. you know I, I talk I talk a lot of, about you know privilege and oppression in you and what I find is that there are a lot of well-meaning people, particularly well-meaning white folks, you know, non-black folks in this context, who say things like, I'm not racist, and who believe in their hearts that they're not. But from where I stand, from the work that we do, to your point about systemic racism, you're either a racist or you're an anti-racist. And when you decide that you are an anti-racist, everything you do you, you interrogate, you investigate the why, the origins. Because until we do that personal work, until we unpack 
the way that we've been socialized, we reinforce racism. So in your example of, you know, the campus police that were called, that in that moment they should have said, well, why, to the caller? Mm-hmm. Are you, are you, are you, what do you mean you're, you're being threatened? Explain that to me. There would also be policies and protocols put in place that if folks are calling, if they find that someone is being called, you know, the police or whatever is being called and there was bias, there should be repercussions for that person. What are the conversations that are required for folks who put in false claims? And I think what, what we have to do, um, what, this, what this time and this momentum is challenging us to, to really see is that being well-meaning is not enough. What we need is a coalition of anti-racists who are committed to investigate all of the bias, all of the prejudice, all of the racism in their everyday lives. Because if, if it goes unchecked in your interpersonal, it's going to reflect in your leadership. My personal ethos, and I learned this through Young People Four when I was organizing as a student, is that uh, at the time I was going to school, my undergrad degree is in psychology with a focus on leadership development. And a lot of my papers were about how leadership in itself was a construct, it, 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 upheld, it upheld white supremacy in the sense of who we think about as a leader, how we expect them to operate, how we expect them to communicate, it all reinforced the same thing. And my, you know, argument to my professor at that time was until we decolonize ourselves, we will constantly and constantly replicate these structures of white supremacy. We will, by the way that we form our, our, our student clubs, by the way that we form our nonprofits, by the way that we form our corporations. There, it's not the job of unlearning years and years of racism is not just going to happen by well intention. It's going to take extra intention, the same intention that was put in place mm-hmm. to suppress people. So, yes, it, it's definitely um, been a part of my everyday life, unfortunately, which is more so why I believe in the concept and we believe in the concept that young people for about training anti-racists, but more importantly, people who are rooted in social justice values and solutions. I, I think you made so many great points as now. It's like just trying to hone in on, on a couple of them that um, I absolutely love what you just said a few minutes ago about you're either racist or anti-racist. Can you give me a, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear your, your viewpoint on it. Um, please give me the difference between being an anti-racist and what, other, what some people like to consider themselves as being, quote, unquote, colorblind. <laughs> or an ally. So, so when, when folks say, I had a conversation this morning about, you know, I was asked the question, how do you feel about people who, in response to Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, say all lives matter? And that, for me, is, is, is similar in the question of how do you feel about folks who say that they're colorblind? So with right. that, I, I have to give you a quick story, and this will, it'll put it in perspective for all of the folks who are listening. So when I was in college, I, I told you, I went to FIU in Miami, and we decided, black organizers, that we wanted, we needed a black student union. Guess what the response was? 
Uh, probably, but we have a student union. <laughs> yes. The response was, why isn't there a white student union? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, my, and the response for us was, well, the white student union – the white student union that takes place after straight pride, is that the, the one? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, so so the response was the entire campus is the white student union. Right. Right? So what that showed us was you were, and, and keep in mind, these were people who considered themselves allies, right, because they were committed right. to their own comfort more than they were the liberation and the free speech and the, you know, uh, identity assertment of other people. So when people say that they're colorblind, what they're saying is I'm committing myself to my own comfort more than I am to being uncomfortable to grapple with this reality. When you say that you're colorblind, you're ultimately saying that I don't see you. And because you see yourself, you're basically telling someone else, Everyone's like me mm-hmm. because I am the prototype. So I don't see color. It's inherently the same question of all lives matter. You, you are erasing for your own comfort other folks' freedom. And in fact, if you decide and you really understand the fundamental principle of being an anti-racist to the – correlating it back to Black Lives Matter, there's room for everyone. You should be able to say Black Lives Matter, period. Trans Lives Matter, period. Native Lives Matter, period. That does not take away from, let's say, White Lives Matter, right? Right, right. But the issue for a lot of folks, going back to your question about being an anti-racist, is in order to be an anti-racist, you have to grapple with the reality and the history of yourself and also acknowledge how you've been socialized to be a racist your entire life. And until you're willing to admit that and acknowledge that, it's impossible to understand what people are saying when they say Black Lives Matter. Right. And, I mean, it's interesting because one of the axioms, one of the um, – kind of uh, principles of morality that is, is uh, very present in our society is the idea of the Christian golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what I'm hearing from you is we have to take that to a deeper level because if we only purview that from our own perspective of a place of, of privilege where you know, it's like I want everybody else to do I'm going to do unto other people as, you know, I want done unto me, but I'm only experiencing this from an experience of privilege. That isn't actually enough because I have to, if I really dig into that principle, I've got to do it from the depth of somebody else's experience as I would want somebody to go to the depth of my experience. Is that, is that a fair estimation? Yeah, I think that's a fair estimation, but it's also doing the work to realize everything that – I think what, one of the biggest challenges that those of privilege, especially those of privilege in terms of perhaps their race and their gender, grapple with is when they have 
identities that are oppressed, meaning, you know, I'm white and I'm trans. Um, so having in a, a very salient identity, a trans identity, that incurs a lot of oppression, it is sometimes hard to grapple with, what do you mean I'm a racist, right? When I have had mm-hmm. all of these, you know, situations and hardships in my life, I think what's important to first note is there is privilege and there's oppression, and one person can experience them both at the same time, right, depending on their identities. But when it comes to understanding racism, the point that was made earlier is that racism is systemic. So until you acknowledge that systemically your life is made easier simply because of the color of your skin, it inhibits you from truly seeing how everyday interactions, you are complicit in that system. So, so I think you're right. I just think it's, an, it's important to name one that the conflict will arise because there are people who do feel oppressed that, have, that are also white, but that does not take away the fact of being systemically and socially socialized in a system that culturally and systemic-wise is racist. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Brody, do you have some... Well, I mean, I've been listening very carefully to what Cece's saying, um, and I completely agree. I, I have some personal knowledge of the area uh, that she grew up in. Um, there was a time when I was a young reporter uh, that Liberty City, Hialeah, and certain parts of Miami uh, were a powder keg, and uh, especially after there were several cases where we had a lot of uh, immigration from other Caribbean nations outside uh, of of Cuba. Um, but one of the things that I look at um, that has always bothered me, and I continue to be bothered by this, and, and Cece, I'm sure I'd like, uh, probably you probably agree with me on this, but I think that one of the root causes that we desperately need to address, okay, and that is educational empowerment. I think until we get to a point where we have uh, in that space a level playing field for all kids, regardless of ethnicity, race, social, uh, you know, environmental pressures, issues, orientation of sex, or even gender identity, we're not going to have an ability to move these conversations forward because what happens is we have this constant cycle where this continues to happen and happen. And what, what CC and, and, and the organization that she heads is doing uh, is directly addressing that. But if that's an issue that has to be addressed, it's a conversation that needs to be had over and over and over again. One of the root causes, okay, of even going into police brutality stems from that very thing. If we don't have educational empowerment, we have to level the playing field. There's absolutely no reason, okay, that a black child in the 21st century America should not have equal opportunities to an education 
that a white, an Asian, or Latinx does. I, I'm sorry. I just don't buy into the, you know, this two-tier system. Everybody talks about, well, we've desegregated the schools and this and that and the other thing, and I'm sorry, that's crap. We still have a sense of segregation, which is why I started my comments off reflecting on the area where she grew up. Those schools are very much not, okay, desegregated institutions. By the same token, we're still seeing that in other parts of the United States. Um, we need to do something. Educational empowerment. Now, I may be out of line here, but CC, I swear that's my name for this one. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but I would love to take it a step further to my point that I made about, you know, being a, a racist or anti-racist and, you know, the systems and structures that we build are shaped by our ideology. I, I question even if we got to a place where, you know, let's say census money is dispersed equitably and, you know, schools were built and everyone, quote, unquote, had access to schools, we run the issue of, you know, there are tons of places that I've had access to attending, but once I was there, my experience wasn't equitable. And it wasn't mm -hmm. equitable because the teachers that I had, it wasn't equitable because how I had to get there. It wasn't equitable because, you know, my experiences weren't the same or weren't valued the same, I should say. And, and I think, yes, there are a lot of different things that we need to equalize for folks to be able to participate in equitably. I completely agree. And at the same time, what I think is the core issue is that there should be mandatory history education that's pushed in places of employment, regardless of the industry, that is standardized. I know it's unprecedented and outside of jurisdiction, but from the federal government, that includes anti-racist training. That has to become a part of our ethos of the U.S. And why do I say that's important is because you can't build systems that combat racism with racist people leading them. It's not going to happen. Or make a racist, system, racist people creating them. You get equitable systems from people who have done their own personal work, their own personal reflection, their own personal grappling and trying to unpack how – how they need to be better, how they need to show up better. They bring that to their work. We can't compartmentalize, you know, folks who – I'll give you an example. I know you all have heard the phrase poverty, quote, unquote, is a mindset, right, that comes from right. folks who are experiencing, you know, dire situations just because they happen to change to a different situation they're working and their brain is operating as if they're still in poverty. Why is that? Because it's the way it's all of the conditions around that, right? It's how they've been socialized. It's how they've been conditioned. That is the same thing as we're thinking about racism. So I agree with you. I do think that we need to, to take a hard look at our education system, but at the same time, we need to make sure that we completely transform the system and the people that will participate to get us to our desired North Star. Right. Yeah, it seems like there's we're dealing with a whole 
bunch of um, background and um, presentation that that needs to be taken apart. I mean, it's the um, and I look at a lot of media and how um, and obviously being gay, you know, I experience this also because how gay people were traditionally portrayed through the years in movies, TVs, etc. And the um, media has done that in, in a great sense to the black population. Uh, there are very specific cliche portrayals, some of them scary, some of them dangerous. And so in, um, that then translates into people's psyches on how they react without them even maybe even realizing it. Um, I want to switch a little bit to solution and what is going on in the country this year. Um, I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the leadership at the top is um, not only not productive, but is solidly in encouraging racism and systematic racism and reinforcing everything that is counter to anything productive happening. And it seems through a lot of frustration of trying to work within the system to bring that the administration and the president to justice, that has failed. So our, our next opportunity really is going to be voting. Um, but in voting, what systematic issues are going to be preventing um, youth and particularly black youth from voting and being able to achieve justice um, through that avenue? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do want to name, yes, I think voting is a great solution. Uh, a great organization by the name of Woke Vote, headed by Dewana Thompson, says, you know, voting is a comma, not a period. And the, the Daniel Institute, they say, you know, it starts with voting and ends with accountability. And I would say right now we're at a place of accountability. Before we, you know, even talk about 2020, we need to talk about the folks that are currently in office and how we as constituents, mm -hmm. as we as folks who live in these communities, you know, are required to hold them accountable, accountable whether it be, you know, pushing back on some of the, the curfew times that they set you know, in different cities to, you know, basically counteract protests to the way that they respond to the way that, you know, they staff. Folks don't realize, you know, folks are still hiring, even though it's a pandemic and, and you know, we are in multiple crises right now. Folks are still utilizing their offices. And what we need to be doing in, in, in investigating is how are we holding folks accountable right now? And then, and I should say, we have an opportunity to engage in 2020. I think what, what we'll face in 2020 is interesting. We are, what's important to note is officially folks under the age of 35 are the largest voting bloc, which is a big deal that happened, you know, at the end of 2018. But it's not just about folks who are, quote, unquote, eligible in age to vote. It's about addressing two things disenfranchised voters and disenchanted voters. And I will say that mm -hmm. a lot of, 
young folks, particularly young black folks, have every reason to be, whether it be generational trauma or the things that they've seen for themselves about how this system not only was not created for them, it was set up to make sure that they could not participate. And there are folks who are in the disenchanted bucket that are, that's like, you know, my life didn't change a lot from Obama. My life, you know, is, is just as crappy with, with Trump. Um, you know, why should I even care? Why should I participate? So I think it's important to name the validity um, and the experiences of those who feel that way. At the same time, we have disenfranchisement happening, right? In Florida, my home state, even though I live in D.C., um, a couple years ago, passed Amendment 4 that would restore the rights to over 4 million formerly incarcerated folks to vote. And what, did the legisl- what was the legislature's response? It was basically to, you know, enact a poll tax to say you can't participate until you pay off all of your legal fees. And that's an example of, you know, disenfranchisement. Like this is, this is people actively finding ways to impede on people's ability to participate, whether it be, you know, using, leveraging the pandemic to force people to go to the polls instead of vote by mail, whether it be, you know, not making uh, registration dates public, whether it be changing polling sites, whether it be, you know, not having simple things like automatic voter registration, there are a lot of barriers to particularly black young folks from voting. And unfortunately, they fall, we fall in both of those categories. Some of us are rightly disenchanted and at the same time, you know, are actively being organized against. I think the opportunity that we have, which goes back to my point about accountability, is how are we engaging with and holding the folks who currently run elect, hold elected office accountable, not only to, you know, run fair elections and safe elections, because security is a big issue, but also how are they using their seats to educate? One of the biggest things that I would have loved to, you know, see come out of the White House is a national, systemized civics education program. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is imagine if everyone had access to really understand not only how government works, but how it relates to their everyday lives. When I was a fellow at Young People 4, I created a civic engagement framework called Passion Framing. And it's, it's now what I, it's become my ethos in civic engagement, and I brought it to Young People 4 as I've, you know, been running the organization. And Passion Framing aims to do something simple, and it aims to say, you know, recognizing that candidates will change, but the power of the seat will not. So if we can educate people on how the day-to-day things, the things that really piss them off, is directly coordinated to a political seat, that's where things change. And I'll give you an example. You know, when folks are around the country, and I don't know if you all saw this on social media, folks were pissed about some of the, the curfews that, you know, folks were putting in place. But imagine if we said to people, if you're really upset about the curfew, the mayor has the power to change it. Simple. If you're upset, you know, that your state is reopening, even though there's a full-fledged pandemic happening, your governor is the person that controls that. If you're, you know, concerned why certain businesses are open and certain businesses are not, 
that's your mayor. Attaching direct issues we call micro issues Mm -hmm. to the power of the seat, that is how you begin to change. So though there, you know, are definitely a lot of things that are, you know, and forces that are organizing against us, you know, we're really excited about the opportunity. The last thing I'll say about this is, you know, we launched a free national civic engagement summit um, that will be held the first week of August that's free and open to the public that aims to do what I said, that aims to educate people on local government, state government, federal government, and international politics in hopes that they have a holistic picture of not only what's at stake in 2020, but how we can leverage 2020 as a way to get closer closer to the world of our dreams. So though there are mm-hmm. a lot of barriers, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic for some great outcomes. Um, what do you, in the current environment, with the people in power, um, what, what do you think the most grievous um, sins, if you will, um, that have been committed? You know, you know, unfortunately, we're in a time where there's a lot of, you know, overt things that are horrific. If I had to narrow it down to the last couple of days, I would say we I'm only <laughs> laughing because that, that that we have to narrow it down that much because there are literally so much. But yeah, absolutely. There's so much, you know. If if I could narrow it down to the last couple of days, I would say what what I would caution everyone and I'm I'm currently writing a piece about this is that we are entering a place if we do not decide to transform who we are of authoritarian regime. And whether it be on national TV, law enforcement arresting a journalist, whether it be the person who is, you know, the head of the nation to say, when they loot, we shoot. We are entering in an extremely fragile place of, even though, you know, in We've never had a democracy. We've had an illusion of a democracy. For the most part, folks are trying to move us closer to a real democracy, right? But what Mm -hmm. we're seeing in the last couple of days of the national head inciting violence, justifying violence against someone or people, a rainbow coalition of people who are utilizing their rights to you know, creating an executive order to basically shun, he said, if he could, shut down a company because they flagged his messages as wrong. That's dangerous. Yep. It's dangerous. So, you know, my my brain is kind of thinking about all the things, but in order to keep my answer short <laughs> to a minute, yeah, no, you know, I have yeah. to just think about that. You know, it's it's not only not right, but it 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 puts everyone in a very very dangerous place. No, absolutely. I so. I, go ahead, Brody. Well, it, it's it's more than just a dangerous place. CC, does this not, you know, if we look at this, you know, let's take a look at the younger generation because here's where my concern is. That is the, the I guess they call them the Gen Z now, but but you're, mm-hmm. 
your adolescents, okay, who are just even trying to find themselves in the world as human beings as they're entering into adolescence working towards young adulthood and they're seeing all of this messaging and, and, you know, I've seen editorial cartoon after editorial cartoon, uh, including some as an editor that I have signed off on for publication. Um, and you know, it's a stark contrast between a white parent talking to their child about what they need to prepare for and a black parent talking to their child about what they need to prepare for moving forward. And, you know, whereas one's be careful as you protest, the other one is please don't get arrested or don't get yourself killed. And that's really, to me, indicative of a larger place that we're at. And you're correct. I, I think that having the president of the United States um, inside violence, there's no other way of, you know, sugarcoating that one, uh, is all part and parcel of this. But if we look at these younger generation and the, and the young people that will be directly involved with your program, what's the type of messaging that you want them to hear? You know, uh, first I want to acknowledge where they sit. And one of my, you know, my mentees explained they help me grapple with where, how they see the world. And as someone who, you know, I'm young-ish, I'm not Gen, Gen Z, uh, which are for folks who are listening, those are the current college-age folks. You know, I'm a millennial, which beyond popular belief, we're grown. <laughs> the average millennial has kids, you know, you know got to say that, um, even though we don't want to be. Um, you know, their middle, early middle school and high school time was shaped by the murder of Trayvon Martin. Yeah, You know, this is 2014. They came into consciousness seeing not only, you know, this play out about this young, you know, kid who was not murdered by a cop, by a vigilante, and not be prosecuted, well, prosecuted, mm-hmm. and he was basically exonerated, right, or found not guilty under a bogus stand-your-ground law, right? They saw that. They saw Sandra Bland. They saw Philando Castile. They saw, you know, now George um, George Floyd and so many more, and a pandemic, and they're only college-aged. Imagine, like, that is how they see the world. And when they explain, you know, when we had this conversation, it really helped me understand why this moment in time, what everyone should know, and and I'm also speaking to the young folks, it is okay to demand what they're demanding. And what they're demanding is this is a reset. This is time to course correct. It's not time for incremental change. It's not time, you know, for respectability politics. It is time right now to say enough is enough. And we demand a world that everyone can be free because what they have also witnessed during this time is conversations about reparations, you know. They saw Standing Mm -hmm. Rock. They saw all of this stuff happening. And they heard – People, Congress folks saying, we don't have the money for reparations. 
it's not realistic. But within a couple years, there's a pandemic, and boom, four stimulus packages, trillions of dollars, printed. They are watching, oh, individuals get up to $1,200, but corporations, uh, you know, tons. They are seeing the, con- the, the conflicts real time. This is not theoretical for them. This is not historical for them. This is their everyday life. And I think what I want them to hear and what we all need to understand is they are right for not only demanding justice for George Floyd and all of the other black folks that have been murdered mercilessly by the state, but also to demand that these institutions change now, which is why you hear them calling to defund the police, which is why you hear them calling to abolish prisons, which is why you hear them calling for education should be free, which is why you hear them calling there should be, you know, health care for all. And they're right. And they're justified. And it's really important for all of us who are, you know, watching or supporting them to get up, get out their way. You know, this is the time. This is the time. And what we have to be very clear about is they are going to be the ones. And to a point, I'm going to be the, li- the ones living in a world, you know, where we don't have pensions living in a world where, you know, water may not be something that's free-flowing, you know? So it's really, really important for us to understand where these young folks are coming from, but also recognize, respect, and move out of the way so that they can create this country and this world and a vision that can really include all of us, because obviously we didn't get it right. (laughs) Right. CT, looking beyond the the havoc and the mess that is right now with um, um, you know with a president who literally encourages racism um, with a population that the people who embrace racism have come out of the woodwork, and I'm not even talking about the people who are racist but don't know it. I'm talking about the people who actually know they're racist. And, and are, mm-hmm. are very proud of it. Um, but beyond that, and it's existed well beyond, is systems that are still not being really challenged, like the Electoral College, which is mm-hmm. fast becoming, it, it's always been broken, but it, it, it's, its brokenness is becoming even more apparent as urban um, areas of the country are, the, the voting power is highly reduced and those urban areas contain large parts of the uh, minority population like California, like New York. And, um, you know, the electoral college was based on a or a, a slavery inspired system. Um, and the judicial system, which has categorized crimes that happen around the black community as being horrific and absolutely forgiving and turning a blind eye and little slap on the wrist, the almost exact same crimes or worse in the white community. Um, all of that was before Trump. How do we break through those seals? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing that's needed 
it's history education, as I mentioned. A lot of folks, particularly white nationalists, are quite confused about the history of the U.S. Um, <clears throat> they forgot that, you know, whiteness was a sliding scale. Some of the folks who identify, you know, or reap the benefits of, of white privilege now did not always reap those same benefits in the country's founding. And also, it was the U.S. was created for wealthy white men, cis straight men, mm -hmm. who owned land. And what has happened, because whiteness has kind of been a sliding scale to maintain power, there has also not been a true teaching of the real history of the U.S. And I believe that if folks had access to the truth, it would help them adjust to see who the real enemy is. When I talk a lot to, you know, mostly on Twitter, when I'm in Twitter arguments, with folks who, <laughs> who are wild, mm. they paint, you know, white nationalism as a savior, as, as a way to assert that they're still here and they're not going anywhere, not realizing the vast issues in terms of economics are the same reasons why black folks have issues or black folks are being oppressed, right? If we think about corporations' role in, in politics and elections, if we think about how money is rooted through communities and who gets some and who doesn't, it's the, we have the same enemy here. But, but the hate and strategic marketing and campaign messages that have been push to them strategically and in, gives them the inability to really see who their enemy is. So I think, you know, as we're, as we have all of this momentum, it, it's really important for us when we're talk, speaking truth to power that we connect truth to power with history. To your point about the Electoral College, you're absolutely right. And that, with the young pe people that we work with, they created a vision in 10 years what they want their government to look like. And the first thing they say is we need to abolish the electoral college because what we've, what we've created access with these young people are to, is to really pull back the layers and to understand the historical context of some of the systems that we have today. It's antiquated. It doesn't work. But in order to have those robust conversations, you have to give folks the whole truth. Excellent. No, that's excellent. Brody? Well, I, I think that one of the things that would genuinely help uh, in, in many of this um, is that this goes back to what I said earlier, CC, is that we have to have educational empowerment. We have to own the history. We have to own the facts. We can't sugarcoat it, and we need to present it in such a way that, you know, the next generations coming up, understand it for what it is within the context. I think a lot of times that's what gets missed. And and that's mm. really from my point of view probably the you know the hardest part of it. Um we're we're kind of running short on time here. Um I'd like to ask uh ask you um you know looking as you're moving forward what's your hopes uh for your organization and what programs uh do you really feel that you need to focus on as we move through the election cycle, and on into hopefully a new administration. Yeah, to your point and, and you know, to a lot of the conversation that mentioned civics, and that's what we're really focusing on right now. Um, going back to our civic engagement summit and workshop series, 
we're really putting a lot of effort and energy into providing as much access as as possible for folks to really dissect and have the full picture of what's happening. What we know for sure is what happened in 2016, to my point about disenchanted voters and disenfranchised voters, a lot of folks, particularly on the disenchanted side, said, I don't like Hillary, I don't like Trump, I'm not participating. And the reason why that was is we did not give voters, whether it's young and old and in between, the full picture of what's at stake. All we said was you should care about your president. But we never really had conversations about what the president controls, what they do, how they impact our day-to-day life, what was, you know, what read the tea leaves to say things are happening. So what we find is really important is to not only have the one-on-one conversations for folks to understand their different roles of government, the different positions and how they work and how they impact little things, but to help them understand how voting can be a part of a strategy to get you to your North Star. In other words, what is the big picture vision? What are we trying to work to? And how are we using every single tool in our toolbox to help us get there? Because we find when you piecemeal elections, you have piecemeal progress. And what we have done voters a disservice of is we've piecemealed those elections. And then they're disenchanted because they have no progress. So what we're spending a lot of our time and energy in is providing all of this information, all of this access for free and online. So again, if y'all are interested, youngpeople4.org, all through July, every Wednesday, we're doing we're breaking down different levels of government with key speakers and workshops to get into the nitty-gritty. And then the first week of August, we're having a free national civic engagement summit with parties and keynotes and, and debates so that we feel like not only are we energized and ready and understand all the things that we need to do to participate in 2020, we have a big picture and a strategy on how we can participate for the long time. Thanks, Cece. And with that, uh, we are out of time. Cece, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been fascinating. It's been important. Um, and, you know, I'm very in, um, enthused about your, your progress and um, that everything you're working on gets brought to full fruition. Um, it's, it's incredible and important that that, that happens. Um, I want to thank uh, Brody for participating as always, and I want to thank our listeners. Also, listen to Out in Santa Cruz, Saturday nights, 7 p.m. Pacific time. You can listen to that on www.ksco.com. That is a live show. Um, For us here at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week, same time, same place. Tell your friends and subscribe to our podcast. We will see you next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.